So Jeremiah 32, verses 1 to 25, on page 799 of the Church Bibles. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is, Ana- that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both both this signed, sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to take this city, up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, 
has said to me, buy this field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah chapter 32, starting at verse 26. That's on page 800 of the church Bibles. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it, with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by my sword, by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be brought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin in the places about Jerusalem, land in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephala, and in the cities of Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Uh, please do grab the inside of the handouts where you'll see a little cartoon so that if you are bored, you can colour that in. But in fact, I don't think we've got any reason to be bored this evening because we have a thrilling passage in front of us. Before we get into that, let me tell you, about a guy called George Gardner. Maybe you heard about him on the news this week. 
George Gardner is an 82-year-old guy in the Isle of Wight who people are struggling to persuade him to move house. He is living on the uh, coast of the Isle of Wight. His house is falling into the sea, uh, but he is resistant to moving. He's lived there for about 22 years. Uh, He was there with his late wife. Now he's living there on alone, but he doesn't want to move. In fact, he's reassuring himself with this line. He says, I've got the fence to support me if I need to hang on. I'll manage, he says. He's confident it'll be all right. I couldn't help thinking, what incredible wishful thinking. Well, that was my first thought. My second thought was, what a great illustration to start Sunday night. (laughs) Because we start this evening with Jeremiah in a kind of house falling into the sea sort of moment. I'm not sure if you spotted that. It's not a house falling into the sea. It's the whole city of Jerusalem. And it's not just falling into the sea. It's falling into the hand of the king of Babylon. Chapter 32 and verse 1. Uh, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. So we are just on the cusp of the whole city falling uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and going into exile. It's just about to happen. And verse 2 says, in fact, the army is already there besieging Jerusalem. You can almost hear the battering rams against the gates of the city. And while Jeremiah is himself in jail because he's been preaching the word of the Lord, he gets a visit from his cousin, Hanamel. But it's not a social visit. Rather, Hanamel wants to flog Jeremiah some dodgy land. Look at verse 8. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth, In the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. It might not sound like dodgy land, but remember, the whole city is about to collapse. The country is being taken over by Babylon. They're not just dealing with a sort of economic crisis. It is a comprehensive crisis. It's as though the missile has already been fired from the invading army. It is already coming, and it's heading for the property, and Hanimal wants to ditch this property before it's too late and sell it to Jeremiah. But Jeremiah has been told by the Lord to buy the land. Not just to buy it, but to make sure that future generations know that he bought it. He takes two copies of the legal contract. One that's a sealed copy in case there's a dispute in the future. And another that's an open one so that anyone can see what is in the sealed one. And he gives them to his mate, Barak, in order to keep them safe. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. And we might not think that hiding them in a mug is going to do a lot of good, but that was the sort of high-tech conservation technology of the day. A bit more like the British Library's humidity and temperature-controlled environment, but think two and a half thousand years ago. And he's doing it because the point is that this purchase needs to stay public. This crazy purchase from Jeremiah wasn't one that he was to hide away in embarrassment. Future generations need to hear that when the the walls of Jerusalem were falling, Jeremiah bought a field. And in case you've lost the detail, the lesson we're supposed to take from this is there in verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Here is the message that generations later needed to know that even while the walls of Jerusalem were about to collapse around them, God was promising that things would turn around. Jeremiah buying a field was a sign from the Lord promising that everything would be okay. 
God's promises from these last few chapters of Jeremiah, they are still going to come true. And the question is how? How on earth is that going to come about? Uh, The house is falling into the sea. The city is falling to the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, as they're also called. And it's not just George Gardner saying, oh, yeah, I reckon it's going to be okay. God himself is promising it's going to be all right. And the question is how? And just as that was an important question for Jeremiah, it's an important question for us this evening. Here we are in a world that seems to be falling apart around us. Wars, the anniversary of the war in Ukraine, earthquakes quite recently in Turkey and Syria, a cost of living crisis, the national church seemingly in meltdown. And yet we've been spending the last few weeks thinking wistfully about an amazing future, about God's great promise in chapter 29. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, for a future and a hope. It's a promise of a restored relationship that we have now if we're Christians. But as we've been saying, there's more of this promise to come. Ultimately, it's a promise of an end to sin, of a world that's been fixed, as we'll see, I think, next week, of a whole new creation. We're not just saying, I've got the fence to support me. I think it'll be all right. We're saying it's going to be amazing. So how? How is it going to turn around? Anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time will know that the answer to that question is the good news of Jesus. Everything will turn around through what Jesus has done on the cross. It is in many ways what we've been thinking about over the last few weeks. We've heard it lots of times already. And so in some senses, the odds are stacked against us for staying awake this evening. We're going to need elbows, a ministry of elbows. We're familiar with this. Do your neighbor a favor and make sure they stay awake. But fortunately for us, Jeremiah is also giving us a huge help on this because this passage is thrilling. The way that he unpacks the gospel in these chapters, I described last week as the high point of the Old Testament. And this passage has stuff so so wondrous that there's a verse we'll come to later, which I can't even believe is in the Bible. I'll look forward to that. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's all brilliant, but there's a particular verse we'll love. And yet we're not just listening to this for entertainment. We're here because we need this. Because the world is broken and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere good. And we need help believing God's promise. We talked about giving earlier. But if you are going to give to the cause of Christ, if you're going to give sacrificially at a time of economic hardship, you need to know that it's worth giving to that God's promises really are going to come true, that that it's a project worth investing in, that God's promises are those that you can bank on. And of course, it's not just about giving. If you're going to make any meaningful decisions for Jesus, if you're going to use your time, your energy for him, if you're going to become a Christian, if you're not already trusting him, if you're going to share the news of Jesus, as lots of us will be this week or in the coming weeks with these mission events, If you are going to give your life to the cause of Christ, you need to have rock-solid confidence that the promises of God are true. Not just wishful thinking, not just there's a fence I can hold on to if I need it sort of thinking. No, a certainty about the future, that this will definitely happen. And wonderfully, we're going to see that from the mouth of God himself. But first, we need to see just how unlikely it is, which is why the first point there on the handout is the confused 
prophet. And you would think that Jeremiah actually has lots of reasons to be confused about God's promises. Uh, the gates of Jerusalem were crumbling. The, the city was about to fall. It's not hard to see why he might doubt the idea that things are going to turn out okay in the future. But as we step into verse 16, we eavesdrop on a conversation between Jeremiah and God. And it's striking to see what Jeremiah is not confused about. For a start, he's not confused about God's power. Verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In other words, you are able. Jeremiah knows God can do anything. Nor is Jeremiah confused about whether God will do the right thing. Verse 19, he says that God is great in counsel and mighty indeed. His eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And God is able, he can do anything, and he's just. He always does the right thing. He deals with people as they deserve. The problem is, when you trace that through the history of the Bible, it is not good news for us. Jeremiah gives a kind of Bible overview which highlights these attributes of God. And it starts in verse 17 with Genesis. It is you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And then he moves through the Exodus, verse 20. You've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Across the page in verse 21, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders. And then he gives a whistle-stop tour through the history books in verse 22 and 23. You gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but didn't obey your voice. Jeremiah has given this sort of rapid Bible overview. And what does it look like for God to do the right thing? For the God who can do anything to do the right thing? Well, verse 23, they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. He is able. God can do anything. And he's just. God will always do the right thing. But the people rebelled against God, and so he's right to judge them. And so do you see why their restoration is so unlikely? It's not just that the house is collapsing, it's that God is bringing it down. It's not just that Jeremiah's field is about to get bombed, it's as though God has pressed the trigger. Jeremiah takes us to this point in the narrative where everything is falling apart, and it looks like there really is no hope. Like one of those movies where there's no escape. I was thinking about Lord of the Rings earlier this week. Lots of us would have read the book or seen the film. You might remember that bit in The Two Towers where, I mean, you don't need to have seen the film. It's basically a siege. There's a, a, a place called Helm's Deep, and the good guys are gathered in there, and they are facing the opposition, but it just looks worse and worse as things go on. It really looks like they're not going to be able to do it and not be able to succeed. And as the reader or the viewer, we're thinking, how are they going to get out of this one? Well, Jeremiah's situation is something like that. The city is under siege. The enemy is ready to storm the gates. But it's worse than that because this is the invasion they deserve. This isn't the attack on the good guys by the villains. This is the attack on the villains by the good guys. 
And for Lord of the Rings fans, this isn't Helm's Deep. This is Mordor. God isn't on the inside defending the city. God is on the outside directing the troops. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. And that is why Jeremiah finds the promise so confusing. He's not confused about God's power. He's not confused about whether God will do the right thing. He's confused because God has promised a change. End of verse 24. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. You, O Lord, you, the one who, you of all people, the one who ordered all of this, are the one promising a change. Do you see what he's confused about? The God who can do anything is rightly judging them. So how can he promise that things will turn around? The only one who could do anything to help them is rightly set against them. So how is it going to improve? We want to see God's answer to that question. But just pause for a moment and come and take a seat next to Jeremiah. He's not sitting in the front row. Uh, Take a mental seat next to Jeremiah, because I'm guessing many of us think quite differently from him. Some of us don't even believe that first part, that God can do anything. We don't think God is powerfully at work, that he's been powerfully at work since the beginning of creation. Well, if that's you, let me encourage you to do a Bible overview or to look at Jeremiah's one here. God really can and has done anything. Still, others of us will have a question mark over God's justice. The God who can do anything will do what is right. To which I would suggest, again, do a Bible overview or look at Jeremiah's one here. God has always done what is right, and he will always do so. The God who can do anything will do what is right. But I guess the bigger number of us struggle to see that the God who can do anything and will do the right thing is right to judge us. We're slow to recognize the seriousness of our rebellion against God. And even if we start, we even start to kid ourselves that actually we are owed the promises that God gives us in Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we think, yeah, yeah, fair enough. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's what I've got coming to me. I wonder, do you ever think like that? What utter nonsense. Again, look at, the hum- look at humanity in the Bible. It's not exactly a glowing review on us, is it? Verse 23 is true of everyone. Having been given God's great blessing, we did not obey his voice or walk in his law. We did nothing of all he commanded us to do. We don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. And sure, we're not as evil as we could be, but we're surely not as good as we should be. We've done nothing of all that he commanded us to do. And so the God who can do anything is right to judge us. Come and take a seat next to Jeremiah. It's not a pleasant place to sit, is it? There in the filth of the jail cell with the walls of Jerusalem collapsing around you and knowing that that's what we deserve. It's not a pleasant place to sit, but it is the right place to sit. And it turns out that from that vantage point, we also get one of the most amazing views in the whole Bible. 
In answer to Jeremiah's question, God makes an amazing promise, which is point two, the compassionate promise. Compassionate promise. I say compassionate promise. It's not quite how it begins. To begin with, God confirms what Jeremiah has already said. Uh, Firstly, he agrees that he is able. Verse 27, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? God can do anything. Secondly, he agrees that he's right to judge. Uh, Verses 28 to 35 are a devastating expose of the people. I pick it up at verse 33. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they've not listened to receive instruction. They've set up their abominations in the house that's called by my name to defile it. It's the most flagrant rejection of God. We we saw last week he described himself as their husband, but they have laid out all of the images of their alternative lovers in the bedroom, uh, their marital bedroom. And yet we probably need a 18 certificate for verse 35, don't we? They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Doesn't bear thinking about for a second, does it? Aren't we glad that God refuses to overlook those who sacrifice their children to their idols? Aren't we glad that he responds to such evil with judgment? The gospel is not the news that God has started to ignore evil. He remains committed to justice, and we must be grateful for that. And he's particularly concerned about those who caused his people to sin. It's a sobering reminder of the responsibility of leading God's people. And it ought to hang heavy over all of us who lead. And yet the big point of these verses is that that is not the end. The God who can do anything is right to judge them, but that is not the end. Because God has committed himself to fixing things. Let me read from verse 36. And if you are drifting off, I don't think anyone is, but if you are drifting off, please wake up for this bit. Because this... Oh, my goodness. Right, verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, famine, and pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in, my great, uh, and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their gods. And there's that phrase we've had a couple of times recently, they shall be my people and I will be their gods. But notice how God is doing all of this. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. As Jeremiah's overview made clear, They were getting what they deserved. They they didn't do anything of all that he commanded them, and so they were heading into exile. But Jeremiah's Bible overview needs an update. As we saw last week, God is doing a new thing, a new covenant, a relationship where his radical forgiveness breaks open deceitful hearts so that we incline towards God instead of away from him. 
And as Nick put it to me in our planning meeting about a month ago, Jeremiah 32 doubles down on the promises of Jeremiah 31. I know that some of you are looking at these in Bible study this week. What a treat you have to look at these verses again. Look at, look at verse 39. God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Or halfway through verse 40, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. It's that same idea of God transforming the heart that we saw back in chapter 31, but now God has doubled down. And the big point is that God is doing it. I will, I will, I will. If it depended on us and our efforts, we would be absolutely hopeless. That's been the history of God's people through the Old Testament. The God who can do anything was rightly set against us. But God has resolved to fix the problem himself. He will make them dwell in safety. He will change their hearts. He will work for their good. And you see that emphasis on working for the good coming through. Verse 39 again, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I'll make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And you're already thinking, aren't you, that that's the verse I was talking about earlier. What an amazing verse to have in the Bible, but it's not. Verse 41 is the verse that I struggle to believe. Verse 41 is the climax, and I printed it on the handout as well, so you've got it there. Underline it, circle it, color it in, it's amazing. Verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good. Not just I'm going to do them good, I will rejoice in doing it, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. With all my heart and all my soul. Isn't that amazing? If you knew that the Bible talked about someone saying all my heart and all my soul, you'd assume it's one of us responding to God, right? That is the way that we are to respond to him, to love him like that. But God got there first. How amazing that God should speak about all his heart and all his soul. The God who can do anything. The God who is right to judge us. He has committed himself to our good. He rejoices in doing it with all his heart and all his soul. Is that not the most incredible thing that you've ever heard? And I was speaking to someone this week who said, yeah, Tim, isn't that just the gospel? Well, yeah, but put like that. It's far greater than the most dramatic plot twist that Hollywood could possibly offer. That battle of Helm's Deep, if you've seen it, it really looks like they're not going to get anywhere. And then, you know, you can probably guess what happens. It all turns out okay in the end. And then there's another battle later on. Someone said, oh, maybe you should pick that battle instead, Tim. Don't mention Helm's Deep. And again, it looks like they're not going to manage it. And then it turns around. But this is the battle we deserve to lose. The God who can do anything was right to judge us. And so for him to turn around and just offer us an olive branch would be incredible. For him to just turn around and offer to do us good would be amazing. And yet he's doing more than that. He's committed to it. He rejoices over it with all his heart and all his soul. And if you're struggling to picture what it means for God to be committed to us, heart and soul, well, then you only have to turn a few pages into the New Testament to see it. And to see it in its gory, costly detail. Jesus, God the Son, stepped into the world and lived the perfect life we should have lived. 
and died the death that we deserve to die so that our punishment could be taken, so that our relationship with God could be restored, so that our hearts could be transformed to follow him. When God committed himself to our good heart and soul, he wasn't overstating it. He's so invested in it, he gave his own son. If you're struggling to picture what verse 41 means, then picture Jesus on the cross. And given that we have that already, don't we know how the rest of God's promises are going to play out? We have this relationship restored, but we're not yet in God's perfect, sin-free, suffering-free world. And yet God has told us how his promises will be fulfilled. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. He's already spent the greatest cost in order to achieve those promises for us. And as Paul puts it in the book of Romans, he who did not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us all things? Have you any doubts that God will finish bringing about the rest of his promises? I called this sermon the purchasing power of the promise. And I suggested to the team that this would be a good week for us to have Giving Sunday. I thought, Jeremiah, he buys a field. He was ready to spend his money because he trusted God's promise. We should do the same. It's going to be a good passage for Giving Sunday. But as it turned out, it's not really a lot about money at all, is it? Jeremiah didn't write this because he wanted his readers to go and buy a field. If you want to completely miss the point, go and buy a field in Jerusalem. And if you really want to discourage me, show me the title deeds, both of them in a Denby pot. Now, this passage is about God fulfilling his purpose. The field was a sign that God's gospel promises will be fulfilled. And so the application to us is to trust that promise. Not just a promise about an earthly Jerusalem, but, but a promise to establish the heavenly Jerusalem. Indeed, the new creation. It is certain because God has committed himself to it, heart and soul. But that is a certainty that you can bank on. It's a certainty worth spending your money on. Not because you'll earn God's favor. He's committed to our good before we did anything. And not because he needs it. Nothing is too hard for him but because he has told us his gospel purpose. He's told us the cause that animates his heart. He's told us what he himself is invested in. And we have the opportunity to get in on the investment, to put our money, indeed our whole lives, behind the one thing that cannot fail, the cause of Christ. It's been a helpful motivation for me to reflect on my giving this week. And to realize that I needed to change it. I needed to increase it. And what a great thing to be able to commit my money to. This isn't a passage about money, sure. But it's a passage about what God is invested in. In the cause of Christ. A promise that you can trust. A promise that you can bank on. And so let me invite you to think this evening, this week, in the months ahead... What are you going to do about it? Let me lead us in a prayer.
Our Father, we praise you so much for the extraordinary promises that you have made to us and your wonderful commitment to accomplish them. Thank you that it does not depend on us. Thank you that you have promised that you are doing everything. Thank you for what you have already done in the Lord Jesus. We praise you for revealing your faithfulness to us already. And we pray that we would trust you, that we would believe you, that we would recognize this gospel cause to be the one that you are committed to, heart and soul, and that we might follow you with the same commitment to it. In Jesus' name, amen.